so my uh, my wife, <laughs> she's been really wanting me, you know, to wear more shirts. I I tend to wear like the same handful of shirts over and over again. So this is a shirt she got me, and just just so y'all know, like before we get to our first question, she was like, "Hey, you can wear this for the live stream." But now as I'm looking at it, you know, in fact, I was gonna wear it the other day, and she goes, "No, no, save it for your live stream." But as I, I look at it now, it might be causing camera issues. I don't know. I'll have to look at the footage on YouTube later and see if it's weird or not. But uh, I'm Mike Winger, and this is uh, 20 Questions with Pastor Mike. I'm going to try to give you a biblical answer to the best of my limited abilities to at least point you in a biblical direction, hopefully thoughtful, hopefully well-reasoned, and hopefully solidly biblical. And our first question today is an anonymous question, but it says, Hi, Pastor Mike, can you help me process the difference between conviction and and condemnation. I know it's right to feel sorry when I sin, but where's the fine line between that feeling and allowing my guilt to cripple me and make me feel like a failure who's unclean before God? So this is a pretty significant issue, uh, the difference between here conviction and condemnation. Let me just talk about these words a bit because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding on these topics. So very briefly, I'm going to run through a, quick th a few quick things. One of them is the definition of conviction and condemnation. I would define conviction as like when you're talking about it in this context, like a personal sense of conviction and awareness as opposed to being convicted by a court. We're talking about a personal awareness, right? So personal awareness of guilt or wrongdoing. That's conviction. It's just awareness of guilt or wrongdoing. Not exactly the same things, but th those things. And then condemnation I would define as being in genuine danger in this context of God's future judgment, like being, you know, rejected from the presence of God for all time. This is, this is condemnation, that sensation. That's the, um, the feeling that you have that going on. So these are very different issues, but, I, but here's where the first misconception about condemnation and conviction is that they're mutually exclusive because I don't think they are. I think biblically speaking, conviction and condemnation are not mutually exclusive. Let me give you um, one scripture that, that kind of gets at this. And, and it is the passage where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit will come and he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. I'll put this up on your screen here for you. In John 16, verse 8, when he comes, the Holy Spirit comes into, this is speaking of like Pentecost, that, that as the church went out sharing the gospel, the Holy Spirit would be working in men's lives as well to bring conviction. So that whenever I preach the gospel, it's not just me. It's the Holy Spirit working in their life individually. But when he comes, he'll convict the world of, you know, concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So conviction is this awareness, this awareness thing, right? And the world will be convicted, but they'll also be convicted of judgment, which is like an awareness not only of their guilt or wrongdoing, but of its future consequences, which we would call in this context, condemnation. What I'm saying here is you can be convicted and feel condemned. You could be convicted and not feel condemned. And so conviction is kind of like something that's acceptable for a believer and an unbeliever. The question is, is condemnation acceptable? Is it appropriate for your heart right here? And I felt this when I first got saved um, and for many years after first coming to the Lord. Every time I felt bad about sin, because as you become a Christian, your, your sort of sin awareness rises way up because you're no longer just trying to be a generically good person. You like actually think that every moral thing you do wrong is significantly wrong because God is holy. He's not just decent, he's holy. And so then I, I fall so far short. And the more you mature in Christ, the more you're aware of like the significant difference between your, you know, attempts at goodness versus God's incredible holiness and righteousness. And so this is, this is to say your conviction can actually increase as a Christian 
more so than when you're not a Christian. But should condemnation increase? Right? I'm going to say that both of these things are, are potentially healthy and good. Conviction is generally healthy anytime you've done something wrong, unless you're feeling bad about things you didn't do wrong. Like you you were, you were confronted someone in love and you did it right, but they hate you for it and so you feel bad. And that's not your fault. You shouldn't feel convicted about that. Um, condemnation is actually good and healthy when you are actually condemned. So they're both good when they're true, but they're bad when they're not true. Here's The, the problem is, me and you as a Christian, as I did when I was early years of being a Christian, when you feel wrongly condemned because you're convicted. And this is kind of like that person who, you know, you, you give like a $5 loan to, and instead of paying you back, they just stop calling you. <laughs> and, and I've had friends where I'm like, hey man, I, I would just ignore this. I don't care about the money. I'd rather us just still be friends. But they feel so bad that they would actually cut off the relationship and this can happen as a Christian. So here's a test you can, you can have, like when you feel you've sinned and you're like, Oh, I, I must be out of God's favor. I must not be able to pray properly, worship properly. And I think here's a test you can give yourself. And for the question or anybody else who's feeling this, the test is this, um, does your guilt cause you to draw near to God or to push away from God? And I think this is a super significant test. My guilt my sense of conviction that I've done something wrong, if it's causing me to draw away from God instead of near God, then it's wrong. I'm handling it wrong. Because godly sorrow over sin leads to repentance, as it says in scripture, right? This a godly sorrow leads to repentance. This is a healthy thing. There's a parable of Jesus that I think helps us understand this. And this is so key. I think as I was really meditating on this, I'm like, yeah, I think, I think the key that shows us everything we need to know about this issue is, is my guilt causing me to draw near to God? or to push away from him. So Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Let me read the parable. You know the parable, but have you noticed this about the parable? So he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisees, we, we, we look at Pharisees as bad guys. They would have looked at them as the good guy, the righteous guy in their culture. So that's how they're hearing this. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I, of all that I get. But the tax collector, he has a totally different approach, right? Jesus says the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, that tax collector, this man went down to his house, his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, you might think this tax collector is um, not drawing near to God at all, but he is. He's, he's, he's at, at once drawing near to God because he comes to the temple. If he thought there was no mercy for him, if he thought there was no grace for him, he wouldn't go to the temple. He would have stayed home and said, oh, God doesn't want a sinner like me. He would have said, I can't pray right now because I've blown it too much. <clears throat> they both draw near, but the tax collector draws near, but stands far off because he recognizes his sin is breaking this relationship with God. So he comes and he's drawing near for mercy. He's drawing near for grace. If your guilt of any kind, Christian or non-Christian, if your guilt is causing you to pull back from God instead of draw near to God for mercy, then there's something broken in the way you're processing that guilt. So here's another word I'll give you for Christians. If you are a Christian, you should at no point think you're condemned. At no point should you feel, 
I am condemned before God because Romans chapter 8 verse 1, it tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me keep reading. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That is, I'm, I, I'm born again by the Holy Spirit. I am now a new creation. The, the, the idea of if you sin, you are rejected by God permanently, that, that is not the deal we have as a Christian. We are in the, the spirit of life. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You, you get this, your sins, if you're in Christ, your sins have already been condemned in Christ. He is the, he's, he did it for you. My sin deserves X, Y, Z. Jesus, he got X, Y, Z. My sin has already been dealt with. So conviction is proper, but condemnation, if you're a true believer, is never proper. Not in the sense of thinking you're, you're outside of the very, uh, the, ver the very person of Christ. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then it talks about the issue of, of walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit. Let me actually offer you two more verses before we go to all your guys' questions today. So this is 1 John 3.20 to show that this is a consistent thing as a Christian. And then I'll offer a little bit of a warning so we don't clumsily apply what the things that I'm sharing with you. At least I hope not. First um, <clears throat> John 3.20, for whenever our heart condemns us, if you are a real Christian and your heart's condemning you, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Like, I, you, I don't want you to feel condemned, but even as a Christian, you might feel condemned, but you're not condemned. It's just your feelings that are wrong. So you've, you're feeling conviction. That's leading to condemnation. This is causing you to not draw near to God in, in, in an attitude of repentance and, and trusting in his grace. That's a bad thing. That is a bad thing. And so, yeah, if you're, if you're a genuine Christian, there is no condemnation in your life ever, period. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Let me read this to us. Since then, we have a great high priest. This is Jesus we're talking about, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's our faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, here's the conclusion, because you have Jesus. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This idea of a throne of grace is that we're going to God's very throne. We're going to the Lord, like entering into his presence through Jesus, our mediator, through Jesus, our high priest, because there is no condemnation for us. So the lingering problem, the thing I will add to this, to say, hey, I want to say every genuine Christian, you are not condemned, period. Draw near, repent of sin, deal with issues, and draw near to God. But <clears throat> the caveat, there's this lingering problem that some people who think they're Christians aren't, and some people who claim they're Christians aren't. They're not, and when I say aren't, I don't mean that they don't hold to Christian doctrines. I mean that their hearts are not truly born again and saved by Christ. So, I don't know how to tell you whether you're the genuine believer or not. I would just give you one question to ask. Is my behavior in my life such that it gives, and hear me carefully, strong reason to doubt I have real faith in Christ? Is my behavior such that it gives strong reason to doubt I have real faith? Not any reason, because if you say that, you, you every Christian should be doubting their salvation because any sin they commit. But if you look at the life and you go, 
This does not look like what I think my life would look like if I was genuine in my commitments to Christ. Um, and it, it's, it's evident. It's very strong. Then I think you need to do what? Repent and genuinely draw near in faith. Not just walk away from God. Oh, I guess I'm not really saved. Like, as if the solution to not being a real Christian is to stay that way. No, you need to repent and put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. We will go to question number two now. And these are all coming from the live chat. We do this every week on Fridays. Oh, and I have a couple quick announcements to make before we get to that question. Let me wait just a moment. Okay, so um, I'm on Instagram now and TikTok. And let me explain a little bit about why. Because <laughs> Instagram, personally, I don't use, don't care for, don't want to use that much. But it's an opportunity to reach and minister to people. It's smart ministry-wise to spread my content out on different platforms in case I get shut down somewhere. And it just reaches more individuals to have an impact in their life. So we're putting shorts and, and um, uh, you know, posts, image posts and stuff like that on Instagram. And you guys are welcome to check that out. I put a link in the video description or you could just search my name to find me on Instagram. I'm also on TikTok. TikTok to me is toxic and terrible and I wish it would just disappear and go away. I don't use TikTok and I don't, other than going on the little management app to just like, comment and reply to somebody or like something. I'm not on TikTok looking at anything because TikTok is the horrific landscape of Sodom and Gomorrah. Like it's the worst thing ever. And and the, the amount of ignorance and sin that is just propagated through TikTok is insane. It doesn't have to stay that way. Maybe it'll change over time. But for that reason, I do not recommend you get on TikTok. Please don't make a TikTok account so you can follow me. I'm, I beg you. <laughs> But if you're already on it for whatever reason, for whatever reason that you, you, you feel it's, it's a good idea for you, then you can follow my account because uh, as it says in my TikTok bio, um, I don't like TikTok. No, but none of us should probably be on it, but I'll try to make it a little bit better for those who are. <laughs> All right. Oh, question number two. That was not a question. That was an announcement. All right. This is coming uh, from an anonymous person who says, what are your thoughts about IVF? That's uh, in vitro fertilization, right? I've been battling infertility for a few years, but I'm concerned about whether or not IVF is biblically acceptable, especially about discarding the extra embryos. Is it equal to abortion to discard the embryos, even if we can't guarantee they will grow if planted in the womb? Um, let me say this. I, I'm not qualified medically, and, and I don't need to be a doctor to do this. I, let me just say I haven't done the research to understand IVF very well. I only know a little bit. The danger of that is answering a, a huge moral dilemma about abortion versus the desire to have kids, which is a, seems like a pretty conflicted dilemma there that applies to an area of medicine that I don't understand very well, IVF. Um, I've heard that you can request that they don't fertilize or don't have create more embryos than you're going to use. I've heard that. I don't know. I've also heard someone else say that they requested that of a doctor and the doctor didn't do that. And they just did their own thing. Like it went to the lab and they just did, eh, who cares what they say? We'll do what our routine is. So then I'm not, not so sure about that. But I will say this. Under the hypothesis, which could be wrong, there may be more about IVF, I don't know, that you're fertilizing, uh, you know, multiple eggs to create, say, a, you know, 10 embryos and you're going to use one or two. I think that that seems morally wrong from the outset, if that's what you're doing, and that may not be what you're doing, but that seems morally wrong from the outset. Because what I've done is I've created a human life because from the moment of conception, it's human, it's got its own DNA, right? 
it's alive by any scientific definition of life. We're looking at this is this is a, a living human being. And so to knowingly plan to create living human beings that would either be frozen or just discarded or then used for scientific purposes, research and stuff like that seems immoral to me. Um, obviously immoral to me. I can't think of a good argument for the for the contrary. So that's the dilemma that I would have with IVF is, is there a way to not create embryos that are unnecessary? Now, the, the idea of um, doing in vitro fertilization, all the other factors about the process of how it's done or having sort of an un, non-typical, right, unnatural kind of you know, creation of humans, it, uh, it, that's not a problem to me, okay? Because you're still, you're not actually, it's, it's untypical, but it's not wrong in that sense. Um, so yeah, th that's my current position on it. You ask what I think, and this is basically based on the idea that humans are made in the image of God, the biblical principles here, man is made in the image of God, and that it is not okay for us to just set aside at any stage of life, a human being to be frozen forever or to be discarded. And um, that seems to me to be the only morally safe thing to say because the contrary is to come up with excuses why at very young ages it's okay to just kill kill humans. I'll use that term to avoid debate here. That at very young ages it's okay to kill humans because you're, you're killing, that's this thing's alive, you're killing this, this, this human, this little boy or little girl. Like there's, there's no realm where that is okay. It's just the moral insanity of our culture right now. The group think that says like it's okay for whatever reasons. And here we're prioritizing the desires of the, of the mom and dad over their responsibilities to their children. Because yeah, I might be making a child that I'm using, but I'm also discarding children I'm not using and that's not okay. So that to me becomes the big question with IVF. Is, is there a way to do this where I'm not creating human life well but there's a good chance that the procedure will fail then let it fail like you're not intentionally causing the the death of you know offspring you create like that's let it fail then like oh but our rates of success will go down like then let them go down like this seems to be the only moral solution to me nick blatt has a question says did the father really turn his face away from jesus on the cross um so here's the problem with this. Uh, just so you guys know, there's a big debate on this on this issue, right? So there's there's a, a hymn that's which I love, by the way. This hymn, um, "How Deep the Father's Love for Us," beautiful hymn, and it says, you know, in it, um, the Father turns His face away. That's that's the phrase that's in there, and this is a phrase that some people really don't like, usually because they're opposed to penal substitutionary atonement, a doctrine that I think is very sound and biblical, and I have a series on. PSA that you guys can check out. It's on my playlist or you can go to biblethinker.org and find it. Um, or mods, maybe someone could put my series on penal substitutionary atonement in there where I defend it historically, biblically and, and answer objections and all that. Okay. So this is turning into a big debate because people were like, well, we're going to change the song. And then the people who wrote the song were like, no, you can't change our song and all this stuff. Um, so did the father turn his face away? The answer I would give is um, it depends on what you mean by turn his, turn your face away. So um, if you think turn, your, because turn your face away, God turning his face away is an analogy or it's a metaphor rather that means what? If, if you interpret this to mean something very um, 
very, very strong, um, maybe stronger than what it seems like it should naturally mean, like the father and the son were separated in, in being from one another while, while, while Jesus is on the cross, then you're saying that God was essentially no longer a trinity, that God is separated and the unity that there is within the trinity ceased while Jesus was on the cross. And I'm going to say, okay, that's actually heresy. Like definitely we need to not say that. But is that what's meant by turning your face away? And let's go to scripture and let's consider what the Bible says about this, this concept of turning your face away. So um, let me find the verse I'm looking for here. Okay, here we go. Um, psalm 132. And we're going to read a, a chunk of the psalm, uh, which is appropriate because here's the phrase being used in an actual song in the Bible. Let's kind of consider how it, how it works. So here's Psalm 132. This is ESV. Um, actually, that was here. There's ESV. Um, <clears throat> Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So, so here is like a, a, a thing. Hey, remember how passionate David was about your temple and about you having like you having your um, your central place in, in the tribes of Israel. That this is, this is an appeal. And this is something God does actually care about is him having a central place in one of the prophets. Is it Haggai? I think. He's, God is rebuking the people because they're building their homes, but they're letting his house remain desolate. Like it just, you know, un, unbuilt, undecorated, um, not cared for. So verse six, behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your pre priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. There's the phrase, turn away the face. Here, it has to do with favor. It has, it has to do with relational favor being offered. And this is, I think, what we see um, from the idea of turning a face towards somebody is the idea of embracing, caring for, giving attention to them. And the idea of turning fa your face away from somebody is like the idea here of uh, I am, I'm ignoring you or not helping you. I'm giving you over to some, some un, some uh, unpleasant fate, some consequences that are going to happen to you that are unpleasant. And I'm not going to stop that from happening. So in a metaphorical sense, to answer this question, did the father really turn his face away from Jesus on the cross? If you mean it in the sense of God allowing Jesus to go through the, the fate of suffering for the sin of the world, suffering this horrific public execution that was meant to be symbolizing a spiritual condemnation of sin. Yes, he did. If you take it to mean that God separated and the fancy word is ontologically, or the very nature of, of God was split. The Father and the Son were no longer united. Then that is not true. So it depends on what you mean by the phrase. And maybe maybe that's why I would say some people can sing it and some people can't, because they're interpreting it differently. But if you're going to do what a lot of people have done recently, which is to use and a, 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 a assault this phrase in a song as a way of you know pushing an agenda against penal substitutionary atonement, I think that that's problematic doctrinally, not because of the song, but because 
the opponents to this doctrine that Jesus suffered the penalty for my sins on the cross, right, to, to, to pay the price for my sin judicially, that those who are opposed to that idea, I think are opposed to a biblical idea and they often use caricatures to oppose it. Anyway, I get into that in my series on penal substitutionary atonement. I welcome you guys to check it out. It's a bit much to also answer your question. So yeah, Nick, I think there's a biblical sense in which the term turning your face away is entirely appropriate to use and I sing it in that song myself. Ben V says in John 8 verses 13 through 19, Jesus testifies that the father is his witness. Given the emphasis on two witnesses in the law, why did he not in this point mention the Holy Spirit? The absence is conspicuous. All right, great. This is awesome. I like this kind of question. All right, so John 8, um, we're going to look at the passage and we'll keep in mind Ben's question, but let's read the passage and then talk about what, what's going on here. Um, the basic idea is, hey, why is Ben's question seems to be, as I understand it, why is the Holy Spirit not mentioned here? And the phrase, the absence is conspicuous is, I mean, how would I interpret that? Conspicuous of what? Uh, perhaps Ben, you're thinking, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe you're thinking this is evidence that the Holy Spirit isn't really part of the Trinity in the typical Christian understanding. And I would say, let's first acknowledge this isn't this is an uh, argument from silence. An argument from silence, which this is a fallacy people throw out too quickly, in all honesty. But here I think it's appropriate to throw it out. An argument from silence is um, this idea that, hey, we don't hear this thing we expected to hear, and therefore it means something to us. The question is, is this passage, is this really a place where I would expect Jesus to mention the Holy Spirit? If it's a passage where he's giving some comprehensive understanding of the nature of God, yes. But if it's a passage where he's doing something else, then the silence wouldn't mean much. Now, here we are in John, and John speaks of the Holy Spirit pretty profoundly. But let's look at this passage here. Uh, so the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. The beginning of this is a challenge to Jesus about bearing witness about himself. Um in Jewish law, you have to have the testimony of two to three people to prove something, to demonstrate something's true. And they're like, here's you. You're bearing witness about yourself. More importantly, the subtext here, I think, is we're the leaders of Israel and we're not bearing witness that you're the Messiah. So this is challenging Jesus's identity, that he's claiming to be the Messiah, even that he claims to be God with us. These are big, giant claims. And the Pharisees are like, okay, you're claiming that. But where is proof from other sources to confirm your claims are true? So this is not about the doctrine of the Trinity here. This is about the identity of Christ. Just to give us that context, let's read on and see how Jesus answers. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I here we are. Let me show you where we're at. But I and the Father who sent me. So Jesus claims that his testimony is true because of who he is. But here's the thing. Um, that doesn't prove to everyone else that he's telling the truth. He's just saying that he, okay, let's just say for those who might doubt, if Jesus really is God with us, then his testimony is enough. But it's difficult to be outside of the mind and the and the experience of Jesus and be able to see that for yourself. But so he's just making the claim that he is truth, him, you know, itself. Um, 
Then he says, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Now he's going to play, I'll play your little game, right? Now he's going to do it. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. When Jesus says the father bears with, who sent me bears witness about me, he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit. And here's the reason why I think it is. In the context, hey, Jesus, how do you prove to us you are who you say you are? You're just telling us who you are. That's not enough. Yes, well, I'm telling you, but I'm true. But you want two witnesses. The father bears witness about me. Who is the, how is the father bearing witness? This is not an internal thing. The father is not telling the Pharisees from within that Jesus is true. This is external. It's in scripture, right? The entirety of the Bible has been written to point to Christ. And he's showing them, look, there is one who bears witness of me, the father. And he goes on to tell them things like, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. But you don't really believe Moses. You think you do. You say you do. But if you really believe what Moses wrote, you'd be believing in me. You would have seen the prophecies that I'm fulfilling. You would have received and welcomed the one who's doing these miracles because you look back at scripture. It's like when John the Baptist says, hey, Jesus, are you, the really, are you really the one we should look for or should we look for another? And Jesus responds and he quotes Isaiah and he goes, well, you know, all these things are happening. All these prophecies, these, these specific prophecies are being fulfilled in your sight. And that's his answer. Jesus here appeals to the father's witness through the scriptures. Do you see, this is actually something we miss now. Jesus in John is actually offering evidence for who he is. And he's using the Bible as the evidence, the Old Testament in particular. So this is why the Holy Spirit's not mentioned. Now it's true that Jesus elsewhere says the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, right? That, that, that David wrote, quote, by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is not meaning to exclude the Holy Spirit from the consideration here. But the point is evidence for Christ. And so um, they don't believe the Bible is why they're going to not believe Jesus. That's that's the bottom line. So let me read your question one more time, make sure I got it. Ben V, you said, in John 8, Jesus testifies that the Father is his witness. Given the emphasis on two witnesses in the law, why did he not at this point mention the Holy Spirit? Its absence is, the absence is conspicuous. Oh, Jesus presents himself as one of the witnesses. So Jesus is a witness. Uh, let me, why should that be powerful? Uh, Jesus does miracles. He heals people. He raises the dead. He casts out demons, mass demons even. And then he tells you, I am he, right? Like I'm the son of God. That is one witness. Then the father is bearing witness. Now there were other witnesses. John the Baptist was one of the witnesses. He points and says, he's the one, he's the one I've been telling you about. And so John the Baptist becomes a witness. We could, um, point to the people who've done the miracle, watched the miracles Jesus did as witnesses. We could consider the, the old Testament numerous witnesses. And then after Jesus ascends, he sends the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is also testifying. And so this is, a, uh, this is where the Holy Spirit more comes in to consideration on this issue is the Holy Spirit convicts men of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. So I hope that answers. And that wasn't too much information too quick. All right. Jeff Weed says, what does the Bible say about ministries that raise money using raffles, lotteries, and giveaways? Would you give money to them? The appeal to my and presumably others' carnality is the sinful. Hmm. Hmm. Jeff, you ask a question that I have not really thought about. So I can more like the last question I've thought about. It, so I've got scripture. I've you know I've worked through that passage and had ideas on it. But this is a question I haven't really thought about, Jeff. Um, let me say that I, I think a straight yes or no, my, my, my thought process now working on it, a straight yes or no seems clumsy and it seems that it would include things 
too broadly. So I'll give you an example. Um, years ago, right, we would raise money. This is before I was even the youth pastor. Someone else, I was just serving and someone else was the youth pastor. And um, we'd raise money doing a cake auction, a cake auction. Now, um, I had slight reservations about doing a cake auction this way. I never voiced them to anybody, okay? Just because I have a little bit of reservation doesn't mean everybody has to know about it. Um, but the way it would function is, you know, people from the congregation, they make a cake and they donate it to, to the ministry. And usually this was either to raise kid, money for kids to go to camp or for a mission trip. And then people from the congregation show up and they bid on the cake auction. Um. And it's not gambling in this case, it's an auction. Okay, so this is this is not really a gambling, a raffle or a lottery, but it's not really a giveaway. So but it's but it's in this vein of kind of like a public giving thing. So the pro of the cake auction was people want and I found this out as we did it, was people wanted to give. They wanted to support and they really enjoyed the time together. We had a hilarious time. Um Pastor Mac, who would who would run the thing, it would would do it, and he was just really great at it. It was a lot of fun. You bring out the cake and people would vote. And usually it's people like a grandpa voting for his granddaughter's cake, you know, or bidding for his granddaughter's cake. So it was a lot of fun. People really enjoyed it. They came in in their head. They thought, I want to support the mission this year. I have, you know, $200 I'm going to give. So I'm going to, I'm going to bid on a couple cakes or bid on one cake, a massive amount or something like that. The only potential downside of this <clears throat> is that giving in scripture is to be done um, God wants us to remove our desire for public acknowledgement of our giving. And this is a, a, a definite issue to consider in like a, uh, an auction like that. Is there, are we creating a scenario where people are given public acknowledgement and credit if they vote, if they offer real big, oh, $500 for that cake. And then it's like, wow, that's really awesome. You know, are we then exalting them because of their giving? And so that's a real issue. Um, I don't think I saw that actually happening in the stuff that we did at our church. I don't think I ever saw that happening to my knowledge where people actually ended up in sinful places because of it. But it definitely sets a stage where that's at least more possible because your giving is like that. It, it's like the idea of putting people's names on a pew when they give. I, I hate this. It's I, I walk into churches. Forgive me if your church is like this. I think your church is just weird for doing this. doesn't mean everything you do is wrong. <laughs> this is just weird. You know, someone donates to the church and then their name gets put on a pew. So whenever everybody comes in, they're like, oh, look at it. and I'm like, well, you have your reward. You know, what you did, you know, was to be seen by men. If someone offered to donate to my ministry and told me like, I'll donate, you know, X amount of money. But, you know, you, you just you just need to acknowledge. Like, I just want to see something on the website that's like, hey, thanks to so-and-so for sponsoring Bible Thinker. And then my answer is no. <laughs> Keep your money. <laughs> um so that's an issue. Uh, there's other issues too. Okay, like let's say that you do a, a, a raffle. Um, you don't really have the the issue of a, in a raffle. You don't have the issue of publicly people, you know, because no one knows how many raffle tickets you bought unless you guys have set something up for them to know. So there's that. Um, it creates a fun opportunity for people to give. Is that bad? Is it bad for giving to be fun? I, I don't want to go that far. I'm going to be open to people doing these things. The idea of a lottery um, raffling, uh, whenever you have, let me put it this way. Here's where I would distinguish between what might be a good lottery or a bad lottery or a good raffle or a bad raffle. A good raffle that's actually for charity is one where you don't get back more than what you gave. In which case I'm using gambling um, as a way of raising funds and that seems strange. 
if I have the chance of winning, say, $1,000 for my $5 donation, now I do agree with you. This seems to be creating a carnal motivation for giving. And I'm not saying it doesn't work, but it does seem to create a carnal motivation for giving. I'm donating to get money. And all you're doing is you're you're deciding we're going to spend the, the profits of this on something good. But does if you do something that's questionable, does spending that money on something good make it okay? And I, I don't think it seems like it does. Um, yeah. So, it, or is it like something little, like something, you know, you're raffling for these cute little fun things or like $5 things, but you're, everyone's donating like 20 bucks in the raffle. You're just making it fun. I don't think that's carnal motivation. Um, so I guess I would, Jeff, as I think out loud, as I work through this with you, I, I think that I would, I would not have a blanket no, these things are wrong answer, but I would have a blanket. These things can be problematic. Give a lot of thought and care to how you do it if you do it. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next question. Um, and I may change my mind later. We'll see. Let's <laughs> just working through it with you. Um, anonymous question. Hi, Pastor Mike. I've been fighting doubts and what ifs around the Trinity lately. And though I'm confident the answers I've gotten in the answer, I'm confident in the answers I've gotten. I fear I'll never be certain about it again. Any advice? Oh yeah. Um, based on your your question here, what you're describing f seems to be more like psychological doubt, and I've totally been here. So let me let me describe to you what I've gone through, and then you can see if it applies to your situation. So many years ago, like 2005 or something like that, I, I went through like this total season of doubt and questioning everything about the Bible, I mean, except really, honestly, uh, except for God's existence, because I, I think God's existence is so obvious that even when I very soberly asked, like, do I really believe God exists? Do I feel like there's real evidence? My answer was absolutely, um, because the evidence is so evident for God's very existence, which is something that I think irritates atheists to know it when I say this, that I think that God's existence is obvious and the best argument for him is common sense. <laughs> I also think there's a ton of philosophical, deep, careful arguments but I also I believe that common sense is the best path to understand God's existence. And if you don't perceive that there's a God easily, there may be something wrong in the perception realm, not in the realm of evidence you're looking at. I don't mean that as an insult. I just think it's true. Um, okay, but how do I know my Bible hasn't been changed? How do I know Jesus has risen from the dead? How do I know that when it says there were 500 witnesses, there were 500 witnesses? Um, how do I know this? And how do I know that my perceptions of my spiritual experiences aren't just some psychological effect that I've had? Um, how do I know that the the traditions I've received in my church are, are genuine and solid and not just something that sort of accrued over time? I, I had a million, million issues. And what happened is I went through this season of real difficulty as I pushed through and I looked for solid, solid evidence. And I slowly knocked these things down one at a time. How do I know the Bible hasn't been changed? And I looked into textual criticism and I examined those things and studied and learned. And then I went, oh, there's a ton of really good evidence the Bible hasn't been changed, at least not in the sense that people often claim. And then I looked into evidence for, say, the resurrection of Christ. And I was shocked that there was actually so much historical evidence for an event that happened 2,000 years ago. I mean, for most things that happened back then, we have zero evidence. It's amazing that we have so much evidence for the resurrection. And I was not making videos at the time. This was all literally just for me personally, digging deep on those issues, amazed by the evidence. 
Um, how do I know that my understanding of, uh, of these passages of scripture are solid, that my basic concepts, my core doctrines of Christianity are true. I examine those things and I go, yes, look, the, the, it's all there. Evidence is there. The scripture's there. But here's the thing. After all that, I remember thinking in my head, do I have any significant, like real serious, uh, lingering question that genuinely challenges my Christian faith? And my answer was no, I didn't have any left that I have questions, sure, but that genuinely challenged my Christian faith. My answer was no, but I still felt like it did, right? So intellectually, I was there, but psychologically or emotionally or whatever, I was not. And that was the weirdest thing because I thought if I just chased down all these intellectual issues that I would have solved my problems of doubt, but I didn't because I'm more than an intellectual machine. There's also a will. There's also how I respond to just general fears. And sometimes doubt can almost, and forgive me for those of you who have serious PTSD, I'm not at all comparing this to that. Okay. This is not, I'm not, I'm just using it as a way of drawing out a point. Okay. So forgive me. This analogy is not meant to be pushed too far, but I think that those who have PTSD, what, what happens is they're no longer, let's say from war, they're no longer in a war zone. But something happens like, say, fireworks on the 4th of July. And intellectually, they know that this is not war. Like, there's, I know it's not. Like, there's no doubt in my mind that, it, that, that this is not happening. But I'm still in total turmoil as if it were. Because I am more than just an intellect machine, right? There's the memory of the fear and the doubt and the insecurity and the questioning. There's the memory of these difficult things I've gone through. And so when I have even a smidgen of uncertainty, it can lead to this psychological fear and doubt that you're like, I'm intellectually secure here. I have a couple unanswered questions. Maybe I have a hundred, but they're not, they're not central. So to this, I say, you won't find an intellectual solution to a psychological problem when you feel like your intellect is already there. You, you know, I want to recommend my video on the Trinity. Hey, you know, I could, you know, for your questions about the Trinity, I want to recommend my video on the Trinity. I walk through some very tough stuff. I give answers to tons of objections I've gotten from, from non-Trinitarians on the issue and mods. You can put that in there for anybody who's interested. My, uh, my video on the doctrine of the Trinity, it's just called like, are we right about the Trinity or something like that? But I don't know if that's going to help. I think that what you have to do is you have to start learning how to doubt those doubts at this point, because when you have fear and doubt, that's based upon little evidence. That's when you have to learn to doubt those things. And you say, this is just me being weird. This is me jumping at shadows. This is me being fearful of, of a noise that isn't, isn't even like that other noise that used to scare me. This is, this is a psychological issue. So my recommendation would be my advice to you. You asked for advice would be twofold. Every time you're confronted with that emotional like uncertainty and that fear that rises up, you, you do a quick intellectual check and you say, hey, do I have legitimate intellectual reasons or do I have general fears based on uncertainty? And if the answer is general fears based on uncertainty, you deal with it in the faith realm and you say, Lord, I trust you. I trust what your, the scripture seems to be saying. I'm going to rely upon you. And that's, the, and that's that. Nothing else to be done. If they're genuine intellectual fears, you work through those and you answer those questions through research and, and, and studying. Um, the other thing I recommend is this. Certainty is annoying 
and unnecessary. <laughs> this is so important, I think, for us to understand. In life, you generally have certainty about almost nothing. And this almost never bothers you. But you don't realize that you're, you're holding up a standard of total and complete certainty on other things arbitrarily. Oh, on the Trinity, I have to have total and complete certainty. Why? Like if, if you're like, I'm like 90% sure, I don't know how you even make up these percentages, right? Like do we, do humans really work this way? But let's say that you claim you're 90% sure the Trinity is true and that 10% nagging doubt. I'm like, dude, you obviously go with the 90%. Like when you're pulling out in your, you know, to drive somewhere, you, you're not a hundred percent certain nothing could possibly bad happen, right? You, I could break, my tire could pop, my car could stall and that truck could hit and kill me, but I still pull out. Because we never live our lives based on the idea, if I have any inkling, lingering doubt of any kind, I won't commit. That's just unwise. It's it, it makes it creates tons of insecurity, and I encourage you to not worry about total certainty. Worry about um, warranted faith, warranted belief. Like I have good reason to believe this, and that's all I need. Move forward. Uh, number seven, Mickey Foley 0105 says, I've been confused about what type of talk is considered gossip. I don't want to be doing it, but sometimes it's hard for me to tell if it's gossip or not. How do I tell what it is and what is and isn't gossip? Um, that's a challenge. Um, Proverbs tells us that gossip is like um, uh, a talebearer. It, it, it's like giving people tasty morsels. It's interesting the phrase it uses. I wonder if I could bring that verse up for us. How do you spell morsels? <laughs> uh, here it is. Here's the verse. I'm using my Bible software and I found it. All right. Um, the words of a, a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body. Um, you know, Proverbs takes wisdom to understand. And I think the wisdom here is to say... Um, when you hear the, the whispers, w whispers implying these are things that um, you wouldn't say openly in front of everybody, that that might be a cue, a, a clue that it might might be gossip. Is that I have to whisper, or I'm saying it privately, I'm looking at it secretly because I wouldn't want other people to know that that might be a clue that it's gossip. That so it's just called the words of a whisper. They're like delicious morsels. In other words, it's enjoyable, it's pleasurable. And it goes to your inner parts, which means it's it comes inside of you and affects you and impacts you. You aren't you aren't unimpacted when you listen to gossip. It's wrong to give it, and it's wrong even to listen to it. Now we live in a world where social media, it seems, has radically magnified the problem of gossip. Like I should do a video on this sometime. Um, a lot, like I keep going through, um, like if I'm on Facebook or something, and I see all these videos about this Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. And I think this is gossip at this, like why it has nothing to do with me. And so it's all, they're all being recommended these videos. Apparently everybody's watching them because it's recommending them to me. And I'm like, why am I getting this recommend? Like this to me is gossip. Like if you're watching someone else's trial for no benefit or no reason, no real needful reason of your own, but merely because it's a tasty morsel, um, then that's probably gossip. So how much of what we're doing is gossip? Like, isn't the bachelor, the show that I, haven't ever watched and won't watch. I know enough about it to know that. Isn't it just literally a gossip show? Or the the real housewives of something or other? Aren't those just gossip shows? Like that's all they are. 
is an inner look at somebody's weird, like gossipy life that just produces, you know, so people can become celebrities because they produce massive amounts of gossip around themselves and people enjoy that like tasty morsels. So I, I feel like we are numb to the issue of gossip. And this is why I would encourage you, Mickey, I don't know if you are personally, maybe you're not, maybe you're super sensitive. As a culture, we're very, very numb to gossip. So I would say we need to dial up our sensitivity most likely. And if you're like, is this gossip? There's, I would lean more towards thinking it, maybe it is just because we're so numb in our culture. Um, you say you don't want to be gossiping, but sometimes it's hard to tell if it's gossip or not. Um, if you're not sure, you know, it's okay to hold your tongue. Proverbs talks about it. James talks about it. When you're not sure, it's okay just to not say something. It's funny how even in my own life, I remember being real young and, and most of us remember this probably in our teens, feeling like when you had something to say, you like had to say it. Like you, it's burning within you. Like, Oh, like I've had people come up to me and do this to me multiple times. Mike, there's a joke, but it's kind of bad. I probably shouldn't say it. All right. So there's this guy and he goes up to this and you're like, it's kind of bad and you shouldn't say it, but here you go. Because there's this like internal, like I have to say this thing. Godly Christian character can be tested often by the words that come out of our mouths. And so when in doubt, just don't say anything. How's that? How's <laughs> that for a nice rule for you? Um, a good rule for myself to be reminded reminded of as well, because I like our culture. I know I've been affected by this. I know I've been kind of numbed on the topic of gossip. And I've been thinking about it recently, how some of these issues, um, like, like many Christians know we've been numbed on the topic of abortion. I don't know that they realize how much we've been numbed on the topic of gossip, for instance. So I feel like it's something we should be addressing. Yeah. Sarah says, all right, she asked this question. How should we explain the different accounts of people who saw Jesus after he rose? Some verses say women saw first, others say men. Uh, thanks for what you do. God bless you, brother. Um, Sarah, I've actually got a video. I'm going to rec I'll answer your question, right? But I do have a video I'll recommend for more detail. And so let me just throw that out there. It's, it's in my, um, evidence for the Bible series. I have three videos on contradiction, supposed contradictions in the Bible. One of them, and I don't know which one it is, mods, Sarah, maybe one of you guys out there knows which one this is. Um, there's a video I have that deals specifically with supposed contradictions around the resurrection account, around the empty tomb, right around that moment. And I'd highly recommend you check it out because that's not an off the cuff answer. It's my careful thought out. You know, I walk through it. I put stuff up on screen. I pull objections from atheists online and all that. So um, my contradictions in the Bible video, I'll find it and link it down below in the video description afterwards if you guys don't see it yet. Okay. That being said, um, uh, we, we have to acknowledge, notice the details of the, pa of the passage. Usually that's the key to this kind of stuff. We notice the very details. So I've heard a skeptic say, well, John says there's only this many women. Um, literally they say this and John in his account of the women who go, it says, and other women. <laughs> so it's like, he obviously intended more. They just didn't read the rest of the verses that were related to this topic. Um, and it'll say something like Mary went to the tomb, but it doesn't say only Mary. Um, and so highlighting one person doesn't mean there's only one person. And you say that some accounts say that it was men who saw Jesus first, but does it say first or does it just talk about men first? And when you're telling a story the, the sort of worldwide accepted rules of storytelling is you don't assume more about the storyteller than what they give you. If they tell you about men seeing Jesus. It doesn't mean that that was the very first individuals who saw Jesus. It might mean it was the first apostles. It might mean it was the first men. It doesn't mean that they were the first individuals who saw Jesus. So 
I uh, I don't see contradictions in those passages and the video I, re I referenced and I'll put down below will explain that in much more detail. The key is to read the passage very, very carefully and make sure you're not assuming anything. And as soon as you do that, you go, oh, okay. Um, and that, that helps. Almost always reading the Bible in context, reading verses carefully will answer most skeptical type of objections that arise from within us or from others. Number nine, Mariah Dawn says, is it biblical for parents to spank their children? Does it model Christian character? Any advice for parents to show how, uh, on, on how to biblically discipline their children, especially young children, like two years old? Um, it, it'd be very difficult to say it's not biblical to spank your kids um, for a couple of reasons, but one of them I'll just share with you. Um, Here's one of the verses we could re read on this. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. He who loves him dis uh, is diligent to discipline him. Now, I want to respond to something. Um, our own culture, we hear spare the rod, and we presume that this implies abuse. Um, it doesn't. <laughs> it can be abuse. Don't get me wrong. I've been spanked with belts, with hands, and and most of the time it was not abuse and one particular time it was okay and that's that's the reality like it, it and it wasn't just because an instrument was used it was because the manner in which it was done and this is the this is the nature of things so the the problem is sparing the rod they hate the sun now you could say well spare the rod is symbolic it just represents discipline in general i agree but what you can't say is that using a rod is ruled out as one of the things that is represented as discipline in general. So obviously it's age appropriate, it's size appropriate. You're not trying to injure children or hurt them. And a lot of, I mean, I feel it in my bones because I was raised in the generation that decided that um, spanking was immoral and was wrong. And and yet I read scripture and was like, actually, I think it was good. And there's times where as a kid, I, des I should have been spanked more. Like I should have, I should have gotten just spanked for that. But there are various things that change. Um, as a kid gets older, and this is going to, I'm going to use human wisdom here, right? But I will say it seems to apply. Um, we don't see adults trying to discipline their, spank their adult children. There's obviously some point where you go from child to adult. And they tended to look at this at a younger age than we do today. We tend to think adulthood is like mid-20s or something crazy like that. They would give like a 14-year-old more responsibilities than we give a 17-year-old today or even a 20-year-old today at the time. And they and probably they were right to do so, I imagine. And we we stretch out childhood and create immature adults. Um, this happened in my own life, and it took me a while to realize it. So what I'm suggesting now is um, there's some point at which spanking goes down because age has come up. And some research has indicated, and I can't, I can't quote the research. It was a long time ago. I was in a parenting class thing we, we were doing for ministry. And... Um, uh, the research was indicating, if I recall correctly, I can't quote the research, sorry, maybe maybe it's wrong. Just take this as anecdotal evidence that um, when when kids hit puberty, that they're they're changing their perspective on life and they tend to view spanking more as like a physical confrontation or attack and it's not viewed the same way as when they're children. Also, so there's one like big life change, puberty that's coming where spanking starts to turn into conflict and not discipline. And that can be unhelpful, uh, really unhelpful. 
But I would say that we might want to even dial back even younger because the age of reason for kids is like around six or seven. Six or seven, kids are able to think and reason more and discipline in different, of different kinds is able to have a greater effect. Whereas at a very young age, you need immediate discipline for immediate issues or else it doesn't land in the mind. So there's like another age where you might consider like, do I really want to keep doing that after an age of greater reason? Those are things to consider. But discipline itself, yeah, is definitely endorsed. And you ask, does it model Christian character for a parent to spank? And I would say it depends on the spanking. Is the spanking too much? Then it's not modeling Christian character. Is it creating injury and, and, and unnecessary suffering instead of proper and appropriate discipline to just get a message across? Is it done while you're, while you're angry? Parents who discipline while angry will hit harder, hit too much, and end up being uh, teaching their kids not how to do what's right, but how to avoid their anger. And this is something that many of us learned growing up. We learned not that you can't do X, Y, Z, but that you can only do X, Y, and Z when they're in a good mood. That's not good discipline. I'm being taught to be a barometer for understanding your anger and, and, and your mood. I'm not being taught Christian character. So that's an important issue for parenting. If you if you discipline when you're angry, because you're angry, you're just you're just expressing anger to your kids in the form of spanking, um, and that is a serious problem, I think. So th that's my advice, uh, parents. How do you biblically discipline your child, especially young children, two years old? Is you do the younger they are, it seems like you do. Um, you need more immediate results for their for their behaviors. The longer you let you linger, lazy parenting, where you're just like, I'll discipline them, but not until they get me angry, instead of just when they do something wrong, uh, that that's not going to help them build godly character. That's going to help them, again, learn to avoid your irritation. So those are some things. I don't have tons of great, great advice for parents of kids two years old, but there's a few things to think about. Aruna Wary says, is Matthew 13... Verses 44 through 46 about us finding salvation in Jesus, or is it about Jesus giving all for us? So this is a parable of Jesus. And the question is like, who's Jesus in the parable? So is the treasure slash pearl our salvation in Jesus, or is it our value to Jesus? Thanks. Love your ministry. Thank you, Aruna. I'm, I'm very grateful I get to do this ministry. Um, Matthew 13, 44. Okay, let's read the, the parable and let's think about it. I've gone back and forth. Okay, at one point I'd said it was this thing and that, and so I have some un, unsureness about this, but the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Um, so here's two interpretations, right? Let's just walk through possible interpretations of this parable. If the man... And that's the real question. If the man is Jesus or if the man is us finding say Jesus or the gospel. Okay. If the man is Jesus and he finds treasure hidden in a field, then we're like the treasure. We're the thing that he treasures and he goes and he purchases. Actually, he purchases the whole field. He doesn't just steal the treasure, right? He buys the field and Jesus would here be the one who died on the cross to purchase not just sinners, but he bought all of creation. His, his, uh, his redemption extends to all of creation, although only those who put their faith in Christ will be part of the kingdom and be, be that treasure, so to speak. Um, but potential downside here is that the man is finding treasure. 
And I'm like, well, am I treasure? I mean, we're kind of a mixed bag because we're hugely important being made in the image of God and we're actually really sinful and not belonging in the kingdom. And so it's a mixed bag. We're not, he's not just finding treasure. If it's treasure, it's treasure in some nuanced way. Um, so there's a, a potential issue there. Now, if you interpret it the other way, if you say, oh no, the man, the man references us. We're the ones who find treasure hidden in a field, as in treasure that we can't access yet, as in we see heaven and the future coming kingdom that will be on earth. We see that as the great treasure and we're going to sell all we have. We're going to give up this world to follow Christ. We're going to buy that field. The problem with this perspective is that it implies that you're purchasing your salvation by, by giving up this world. You're actually getting currency by which you purchase your salvation. And this is one of the things that's caused me to interpret it the other way and say the man is Jesus. Here's the thing. What we're doing is we're sort of, if, if I do that, if you're following my logic and you go, oh, well, then the man's Jesus. I agree with you, Mike, the man's Jesus. What we're doing is we're actually loading a theological rule that we have before we come to the text and we're interpreting the text based on that rule. That may be true, but we need to acknowledge we're doing it, right? Like I'm, I'm using something outside of this passage, a principle I've learned and I'm applying that here. So what you can do to help try to um, balance it out is read more of the parables, and in particular the parables in this section. And so you have, you know, to see if they give commentary on Jesus. And this is what I would ask you to do for homework, right? Read these parables and think, um, is there a consistent thing? Is the is the man in the parable, is there like one person in the parable, the usually Jesus? And if that's consistent, then maybe we should interpret that as Jesus and take my preferred interpretation. <laughs> so the parable of the sower, right? The one who sows the good seed is the son, is the son of man. In this parable, there the individual, the one focused doing the action of the parable is Jesus. So in the following parable, that would in, at least lean us towards thinking it's Jesus. In the parables after that, it says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is a parallel parable. You can interpret it either way for the same reasons, you know. So you go to the next parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into, into the sea. Well, here we don't have, we have a parable that doesn't have a central single singular figure. And so that becomes a little more difficult to apply it to the last parable. Like if we're looking for a consistent thing is, is the man in the parable always Jesus? Um, and so I'm going to say based on thin evidence, but evidence. That the parable of the sower, the one who's doing the actions being Jesus, that perhaps this is also about Jesus. But I'm open. <laughs> so I don't have a firm, solid con conclusion on it. Maybe I will next time I happen to be teaching verse by verse through that passage. Number 11, net user says, I'm pursuing a degree in religion and considering looking for ministry jobs. Is it right for me to apply for ministry jobs I might not be qualified for and trust the church to make a good decision? Let me ask you it this way. Now, I don't know what you mean by qualified for, but let me, taking your words the way you've written them. Let's say that you are applying for a job as a software developer at a company. And you asked, Mike, is it okay for me to apply for a job as a software developer that I'm not really qualified for and just trust the company to make a good decision about hiring me? Well, the company can't make a good decision about hiring you unless you're very open about your qualifications. So if they want to hire someone who has less qualifications and they're committed to training you, 
they need to know that information ahead of time or else you're kind of perpetrating a bit of like fraud or misrepresentation to the company if you present yourself as qualified and then hope they figure it out. So I think the real issue here is when you go to churches and you apply, go ahead, but make clear the weaknesses that are, exist in your own qualifications so they can make an informed decision. Then you've, you've put out the disclaimers. They know exactly your situation. They know what you're pursuing. They know what you're capable of. They know your commitment level and they know your abilities and your education. And then they can make good choices. So um, yes, you can count on them to make a good decision, but only if you give them full information. There's my short answer. I think that that would be the right thing to do. And then you're just trusting God to lead and direct you. Yeah. Number 12, Bible Sniffer. Interesting, interesting name you got there. Bible Sniffer says, what's your opinion on Genesis 3.16? The ESV says contrary to, and other translations say for. It can't be both, can it? I'm so confused by it. All right, let's go to Genesis 3.16. Here's a passage I've studied in great detail recently. So talk about it. To the woman he said, this is God's curse that he directs towards Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Um, others say it'll be for your husband. Let's see, here's New King James. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The um, NIV it says here, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Uh, King James Version, your desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over you. Others say things like, um, uh, actually, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly how they word it, but they word it differently. But here's the concept they're, they're, they're working with, they're debating within the translations is, does she desire her husband in a way that is like um, conflict related? Or does she just desire her husband? If you translate it, your desire shall be for your husband, it seems like it's not conflict related. If the, you translate it as your desire shall be contrary to your husband, it seems like it is conflict related. So that the desire is contrary in the sense that maybe she she wants to control him and uh, he's going to have the control in the relationship. This, this could be the way you interpret that. If her desire is just for her husband, like it is say here, in the um, New King James, then you could just say she's desiring her, she just desires her husband. Like, I wanna be married, I want a husband, or maybe I want relationship with my husband um, emotionally, or maybe I want it physically, or maybe all of the above. But that's not any conflict that's there, right? So then it it would just be, hey, you're having a desire for, for a husband. Um, it doesn't feel like a curse there. <laughs> and he shall rule over you. That part seems like it could be negative. Notice there's another indicator in the ESV that they're showing there's conflict in the relationship because they put the word but in the following phrase. So your desire shall be contrary to your husband, they say, but he shall rule over you. So definitely there's conflict here. Um, well, the, the closest related passage is found in the next verse. And um, next verse, next chapter, excuse me. And this is worded almost identically like it's nearly identical in the Hebrew and it has to do with Cain. And it's not about Cain. It's not like even, it's even her husband in the first passage. In the next passage, which is again, so similar, it's, you can't ignore it. And it's right next to it in the text of Genesis. It's about Cain and sin. Interesting. Okay. So let's, let's look at this. Um, uh, Cain's upset 
because his offering is not received by God. And then God tells him, uh, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's the same wording in the Hebrew. So when we say, um, how does how is it meant with Eve? We should probably say it's meant similarly when the same wording is used, except it's like, uh, neuter or something instead of instead of feminine because it's you know it, here it's it's the same basic phrase in Hebrew um, so its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it this is no doubt about it no matter what translation you pick even if you say it a different way um, its desire is for you but you should rule over it see New King James being is being consistent oh we said for you in both cases but it's not positive sin wants to control you but you should rule over it that's the implication here with Cain. Others have tried to interpret it differently. One scholar tries to say that this passage, sin is like a lion and it wants to have intimate relationship with Cain by eating him. And so it's just about intimate relationships. It's about physical intimacy. Eve wants physical intimacy. Sin wants physical intimacy. And I'm like, this is the worst. It's so obviously not the case. <laughs> um, I'm going to take Genesis 3.16 the same way I take this passage. There's a, there's a conflict now that the relationship between husband and wife would have been totally harmonious in a sinless environment. But now that there's conflict and that their desires will be conflicting, it's going to be even harder for her because while she will desire to have some control, he's going to end up having that control. It's not a good situation. It's not happy. I, otherwise, before the fall, I think he still would have had a leadership role, but it wouldn't have been amidst the conflict that sin creates. So sin comes in and messes this up. This this proper leadership messes it up. There's my understanding of that verse. Um, and I have in my second video on my Women in Ministry series, I go through this in great detail and you can check that out. It's on my uh, channel. All right. Just type Women in Ministry Part 2, Mike Winger, and it should pop right up. All right. So MTG explained as a question, why does God get angry with Balaam in Numbers 22? Verses 20 through 22. For going when it seems he just told him to go in verse 20. All right, let's look at it. This might be a good example of, of why context is so important. I love doing this because the Bible just keeps getting, it helps us out if we let it. Okay. God came to Balaam at night and said, if the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Balaam's kind of being like a prophet for hire here. And then God's anger was aroused because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him, meaning he's going he's gonna to die. Right? And he was riding in his donkey, and the two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. The, um, the irony here is that an animal has greater spiritual and uh, perception than Balaam. Balaam's the fool. So Balaam struck the donkey. I'm going to keep reading to give us context. He struck the donkey uh, to turn her back onto the road. And the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw that the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. Crunch. So he struck her again. 
Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with with his staff three times now. He's done this. He struck this this donkey. More wisdom and fear of God than he has. Um, You know, then the Lord opened the mouth of of the donkey, right? This was a miracle. The Bible is not teaching that donkeys can talk. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? This is like a, a puppetry thing. God is putting words in this animal's mouth to teach Balaam a lesson. And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand for now I would kill you. He's so enraged. He's so furious that he responds back. And so the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you've been ridden uh, ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And we need to know this. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. Then the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now and let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Right? He, he offers to turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, you shall speak. That was the lesson. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Go ahead, but this was all a, a, a sort of intentional moment of lesson to scare the poop out of you, Balaam, so that you will not speak anything other than what I tell you to speak. Consequently, in the story, Balaam goes to offer prophecies that are very important and very significant. And it was very significant that he did not say anything he wasn't supposed to say. This causes him to lose out on the money he wanted, if I remember the story correctly. Um, but there's, uh, so God says, yeah, go ahead and go. But Let's back up a little bit more for greater context still. So Balaam says, uh, um, he's, that he's asked like, hey, um, I want to go. I want to go with these people and they're going to pay him money to go and prophesy. And God tells him in verse 12 of Numbers 22, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and he says, go back to your land for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. Hey, I'm going to follow what he said. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and, and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Then Balak sent princes more numerous and more honorable than they. Why? Because man, it makes you feel important when big, important people come to you and ask you for things. And they, and they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, please let nothing hinder you from coming to me for I will certainly honor you greatly and I will do whatever you say to me, which is a huge thing. When a king's like, anything you ask, I'll give you. It's, it's, it's a big deal. Therefore, please come curse this people for me. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I can't go beyond the word of the Lord, my God, to do less or more. Now, therefore, please you also stay here tonight that I may, this is, this is the squirrely part that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Now Balaam is like, hey, God, you already told me don't go, but God, they're offering me even more money this time. They're going to give me even more prestige this time. Are you sure? Are you sure I can't go? Do you see the compromise beginning? And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men come to call you, rise and go with them. 
Now he can go, but this is now going to be a lesson to Balaam and a lesson to them. So the angel of the Lord doesn't intend to actually kill Balaam. He intends to teach him, okay, you've already compromised in wanting to go, but I'm going to use this now. I'm going to use this now, but you better not go beyond what I tell you to say. So he puts that fear of God into Balaam even more. I think when you read the whole story, you see that the this, this situation, God says, don't go. Balaam's like, but they give me more money. But I say, Fine, you go. Don't you dare say anything beyond what I say. And here's Balaam, maybe in his heart thinking, I'm going, I'm going to say whatever they want me to say. I'm going to, I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to make some big friends and I'm going to be, this is my day. This is the, my success is on its way now. And so God gives him the scare of his life on the road to say, don't you dare go beyond what I say. And then Balaam doesn't go beyond. So there, that's how I see it. Thessalus Sparks says, can you talk about Luke 17, three? Should you rebuke someone after they repent? Interesting. I wonder what Luke 17, three says. Uh, should you rebuke someone after they repent? Was that what you intended to ask there? Okay, I'm going to read three verses here. Um, maybe, maybe more. Uh, then he said to the disciples, it's in, it is impossible that no offenses should come. But woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck than he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, seven times in a day, returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. This is interesting because um, I don't, I don't fully understand the question, but let me just make an observation on, and then I'll read your question again and see if I can grab it better. Um, this particular verse, it suggests that when someone sins against you, you haven't yet forgiven them, right? They sent you rebuke them. And if they repents, you forgive him. What do you, well, what if he doesn't repent? Do you not forgive? Are we, to, aren't we to forgive as we are forgiven? Well, this is kind of a complicated topic. And I, I, I think an easy way to understand it is the difference between forgiveness and, and, or at least let me put it, let me put it the way I, I like to say it. I think is the most careful. There's a difference between the offer of forgiveness and the reception of forgiveness. I am to offer forgiveness to all people without any caveat, without any policies, without any limits. But they do not receive forgiveness unless they repent. So my heart is clear. I'm not holding grudges. I'm giving it, to, giving it away. I'm giving it to the Lord. I'm letting God deal with it. But they do not receive the forgiveness and the fixed relationship unless they repent. That, I think, is a solid biblical rule. Jesus does it too. On the cross, he offers forgiveness to all, but you don't receive it unless you turn from sin to Christ. Now, you, you don't repent perfectly in every way. You don't, it doesn't mean you never sin again or even never do that sin again necessarily. And so here he says like, hey, even if it happens seven times a day, seven times a day, he comes and says, he sins and then says, I repent, then forgive him. We're to have this kind of really gracious attitude. I love this. This verse is encouraging because it encourages me about how much God forgives me. Seven times a day, really? <laughs> He's very forgiving. Um, but your question is, can you talk about Luke 17, 3? Should you rebuke someone after they repent? Here, this rebuke comes before the repentance, right? If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If someone comes to you and repents, I'm sorry I did that sin against you. There's no need for rebuke because they've acknowledged it already. So um, this would be like, I would agree with you, don't, or if you, if you mean this, don't rebuke people after they've repented. They've repented, like let it go. 
you know, a man in Christ is a new creation. Like we're not going to hold the old stuff against you because we see it as dealt with. So I, I would agree with you there if people repent, um, that we do not need to rebuke them afterwards, which would improve some people's relationships. <laughs> uh, Z Nappy Z says, does God still speak to us? I've heard it said that if you want to hear God and uh, read your Bible, and if you want to hear him audibly, read it out loud. I believe God does still speak, but I'm conflicted. Hey, I'm conflicted too, my, my nappy friend. Um, I'm conflicted too. And here's the reason why. Um, I think God generally does speak to us through scripture. This is his normal way of speaking to us. I remember having a conversation with a student many years ago, and I felt as though he was too committed to following his emotions, thinking that they were God. And so he'd be like, God's leading me to this. God's leading me to do that. God's, And it was kind of like typical teenage sort of like jumping from one commitment to another to another, but with a God's leading me to attached to it. And I don't think that was that great. So I remember talking to him saying, how does God speak to us? And he goes, well, he can speak to you like, like put something on your heart where you just really feel strongly about it. Go, okay. How else could God speak to us? He goes, well, he could give you dreams. How else can God speak to us? Well, he could you know, give confirmation from other people. Like someone else comes up to you and maybe they're like, Hey, tell me, I think God's doing this or saying this. And I said, how else? And he eventually was like, yeah, I don't have anything else. Like, I don't know how else I go. You can't think of any other way God speaks to us. And he goes, no, I can't. I said, well, what about the Bible? <laughs> you know? And this was needful in his life because he was leaning very much on this, his own, his own sort of emotional journey thinking it was God. And I don't think it was. And I think that happens a lot. So when people are like, Hey, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. You want to hear him speak out loud, read the Bible out loud. There's a value there but because it creates a safety because everything in scripture is solid and true and good and applies into my life um, consistently. Um, although not every verse applies the same way. I'm not saying that. But the um, th there's a safety that's there and there's a danger in leaning too much on my own emotions and my own perceptions and my own like sort of, I feel like, especially when you when you have a romantic thing going on, man, I really like that person. I think God's leading us to be together. I mean, this is probably the most frequent time I've heard people falsely speak, you know, that God told them something is is when it's about a, a relationship. Because when your emotions are the highest on an issue, you're the most likely to misinterpret that as God's voice. Um, and our emotions get incredibly high on the topic of relationships. So I get it. There's safety in saying to people, um, things like this. Here's a phrase I've heard that if, um, uh, oh man, it, it, you guys have maybe you've heard it too. Man, what's the phrase? It's something like if, if God speaks to you and it's this, and it's, and it's the same as what you read in the Bible, then it's not necessary. Oh no. It's something like, uh, if God speaks to you in the Bible, it's, Oh, I cannot remember the phrase. Man, it's such a good thing to respond to. I was hoping I could say something about it. But it's something about it being, if, if he says something to you and it's in the Bible, then it's then it's necessary. If he says something and it's not in the Bible, then it's, it's unnecessary and it's like pointless. None of us needs any special word from God for any reason is the basic message. Okay, that I disagree with. Um, I disagree with, and I have biblical examples that disagree with this. You know, when Paul tells Timothy that he needs to fight, you know, and remember the prophecies that were given over him, Right? And, and, and live according to it. These are prophecies and they're not recorded in scripture. There's prophecies given over Timothy that he's supposed to like hold on to and they're going to give him courage to press on in ministry and serve the Lord. And they're not recorded in scripture. We only know they exist because Paul mentions them, 
but we don't know what they were. So Timothy had extra biblical prophecies he personally held on to to help him through to continue pressing forward in the, a difficult life of serving Christ. Maybe you have that too. Why would I, why would I say that's not important? You know, if, if, if God speaks to you, those things, it's just that we are in a culture, a Christian culture that has lowered the bar so low for confirming that God has actually spoken to you that we often think our emotional like desires and our wants and stuff like that are just the Lord speaking. I heard a pastor not long ago give, give ways you can tell that God is speaking to you. And he was like, you have an idea and it's just, you can't get it out of your, he did it from the pulpit. He was like, you just can't get this idea out of your head. You can't get it out of your head. You're obsessing over it. Maybe it's the Lord. And I'm like, that's not a very good rule. Like <laughs> that's not a good rule. That's not how you test if something's from the Lord or not. Um, another thing he gave was um, if you find you're, you're just getting stagnant where you're at, maybe God's calling you to move on. Oh, that's scary. Like what about in marriage? You know, I mean, what about jobs where it's just going to be years of feeling that way? Cause it's just a long season of difficulty, but you should press on and serve. I think that these we're all ways of seeing if you're really discontent and you really want something else, but not ways of knowing if God is approving of that. So I think that we, we, can, we can fail here a lot. My primary thing is scripture, scripture, scripture all day long, because this is what I know God said. I'm open to God speaking to me, but personally in my life, and I'm not the most spiritual guy out there, but in my life, it's extremely rare when God speaks to me, like lay something on my heart and I, I'm very convinced it was him, right? It has happened. But it's very rare. I could go a very long time without that. And I'm totally okay with that. Because I don't need that to validate my relationship with God. Jesus validates my relationship with God. I, uh, I'm i just open to it. But, but I think that the more you grow in Christ, the more he perhaps might want you to make wise choices and not just be led by spiritual knowledge that you're getting. Because, um, you know, we call someone who, who has to be told what to do at every juncture a child. And the more they grow up, the more we want them to be equipped with the wisdom that we've given them to make wise choices. I think that God desires that of us as well. So I feel that what they feel when they're like, dude, emphasize the word, man. If you want God to speak to you, read the word. I'm like, yes. If you want to hear him out loud, read out loud. Yes, I agree. But don't discount that he can also speak to you privately. That may well happen. And it may be the thing that carries you through a hard time. And that's a good thing. Number 16, John Pement says, if Christian work is restorative, colon, healing the sick, clothing the naked, etc., to create foretastes of heaven, then why is transgender surgery wrong? Isn't that also restorative slash fixing disorder? Um, okay, there's, John, uh, John, forgive me here, there are a, a number of things that I disagree with in what you've shared, and I'm going to walk through those only for the sake of clarity. Um, so please consider what I say. I know, you know, being the guy with the microphone, I've got a much louder voice, and it can be it, it could be like a little unfair just because I have such a loud voice and you're not able to respond back right now. But I hope you'll consider these thoughts, right? So you say, if Christian work is restorative, healing the sick, clothing the naked, and this creates a foretaste of heaven, uh, and that's your principle, like that Christian work is supposed to be restorative and create foretastes of heaven. I don't think it is. Um, so it can be, but I don't think it just is, where everything I do as a Christian is restorative to those who are watching and listening. When and an example from scripture is, and I, I want you to really let this sink in. When Jesus preached, preached to groups of people, they would sometimes ignore him. And then he would tell them that they were even more condemned now than, than before. Let that sink in. 
Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the works that have been done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have still stood till today, right? It'll be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom than it is for you because they ignored the miracles and the works that Jesus had done. So Jesus shows up and you could look at Jesus's ministry and you could say, it was restorative to some people, but to some people it was absolutely condemning. His work only brought them deeper into condemnation. Are we going to blame Jesus for that? I mean, some people will. I'll be like, no way, man. The light of the world comes and the darkness rejects him. That's the darkness's fault. The judgment that comes upon them is, is completely just. And God is glorified even in dealing with them in judgment. But I would just say this, biblically speaking, our work is not entirely restorative. It's just not. The desire is restoration with God. But those who reject the truth don't receive that. And so um, so it, it, it's too clumsy of a principle to say Christian work is restorative. Yes, there's healing the sick. Yes, there's clothing the naked. But there's also preaching the gospel. There's uh, telling people to turn from their sins. And, and like, you know, Paul the Apostle's persecutors would not would not consider his work restorative they would consider it destructive they were just wrong so it was destructive to them anyways um so that's that's an important issue i, I would just throw out there too clumsy of a principle to say that all christian work is quote restorative it it's not it depends on whether people accept or reject the gospel whether they get restored or not but you then you ask this um why is transgender surgery wrong isn't it restorative slash fixing disorder and here's where i'm going to say the the question here is where is the disorder in a transgender person if you're transgender here's two possibilities there's disorder in your body you have the wrong body like you should have a female body but your body is male you have a uh, you should have a male body but your body's female and so finding the disorder in the body we think we ought to fix the body, make it as, as close to male as you can. I mean, you can't act with any degree of surgery. You can't actually make a truly male body out of a female one. You can't make a truly female body of a male one, but you can, um, you can cut off and remove essential parts of the body that represent your femaleness or your maleness. You could try to reform and genetically like use certain, this is so sad, use surgery to try to restructure, to artificially create some mimicry of a male or female piece of anatomy, but you can't actually change the body. But let's, let's just say that the real issue here is we're finding the disorder in the body. Here's another option. A transgender person who says, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body. The disorder is in the feeling, not the body. If the disorder is in the feeling and not the body, then to butcher the body, to to align to the feeling is only to create more disorder. And it might feel delightful. It might feel to the person, but I feel great about this. But you cannot test the truth of things based on how people feel about them. Or else adultery is okay. And parents abandoning their children is okay. And kids rebelling against their parents is okay. And people rejecting God is okay. I've, I've seen plenty of atheists who are like, I'm happier now as an atheist. you know. But can I test the truth of those things based on your sense of satisfaction? No. The disorder is in the mind. The disorder is in the, in, in the mind. And so treating the disorder is treating the mind. Hey, you have the worst, let me put it in terms our culture might understand. You have the worst form of body shaming going on in your own heart. You hate your own body so much that you would like to cut pieces of it off and surgically alter and butcher it. This is body shaming 
to the nth degree. Instead, I want to tell you that you were, you are a woman, you are a man, and it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And it's something you should learn to embrace and accept about yourself. This is where a proper self-acceptance is actually needed. So I'm going to sound like a, 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 you know, a little different than I normally sound right now and say that self-acceptance, right? And the opposite of body shaming are what's needed in the trans community. Instead, we're just, we're just body shaming them to the nth degree. Yes, your body is wrong. Yes, your, your body is wrong. You are a woman trapped in a man's body and we're going to fix that, but you can't fix it. You could just butcher. And it's so sad. It's so sad. So the most restorative thing is giving people truth that helps to break this incredible sense of body shame. Number 17, James Macy says, a Muslim asked, why did the gospel of Matthew ascribe the prophecy in Isaiah 7 to Jesus? When that prophecy describes events which didn't happen within centuries in Jesus' in Jesus's lifetime. Thanks, Mike. Okay, I understand what you're saying, I think. Um, Isaiah 7, uh, let's, let's just look at the passage. And then I'll try to offer my, under, my understanding of James's question here. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and milk, uh, curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good before the child shall know. Now, this is we take to be about Jesus, right? Um, but he's going to say that, but the other stuff didn't happen around the life of Jesus. So before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will, will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest parts of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. You, you need to understand these, the, sim, the symbolic nature of these animals to understand this passage better, um, the bee and the fly and all that. But it's, we're running out of time. <laughs> they will come and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and the clefts of the rocks and on all thorns and in all pastures. The same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head of the hair of the legs, the head and the hair of the legs, and also remove the beard. Um, he's going to let these other kings come in and embarrass and shame those people is the idea. There's, you really have to understand their culture a lot to understand these passages well, I think. So, but the idea is basically this. In Isaiah 7, it's like, hey, this is the, the thing a virgin will conceive. And then there's before he's, he's uh, getting any of any age, you know, before he's like a year old, all this stuff's going to happen. Okay. So this could be taken one of two ways. Um, this stuff happened closer to the time of Isaiah. So it all happened and Jesus shows up. So it was before the child comes, it all happens. Or it could be taken as like, oh, this is Isaiah's kid. Isaiah has a kid. These things are going to happen within the next like year. And so that, that happens. But as you read the passage in more detail and you got to read Isaiah and here's my, here, I'll just give you some homework because of the sake of time on this, on today's stream. If you read Isaiah 7 all the way through Isaiah 9, maybe 10, you're going to see that there's a connection to Isaiah's kid with this, this virgin shall conceive, but it's not a full connection. There's a connection to Jesus or to the Messiah, the ultimate Messiah. And that's why you read further passages. You keep reading and you realize this child is, is it relates to Isaiah's time, but in a fuller and complete way, it relates to the Messiah. Um, and there's a whole... I know there's a number of questions that come up and people are, oh, well, it's like you're just making stuff up as you want to get. No, 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 no. There's a strong 
exegetical case for all these things. I just don't have time to do it in the Q&A. So I apologize for that. Um, so yeah, the, the other stuff you might see, sometimes you have messianic prophecies that talk about judgment coming when the Messiah comes. And the thing is the Messiah has two comings. Okay, so all of his, his you know, his showing up, it's two, two very far separated events, once for salvation, once for judgment. And um, you could say salvation to those who receive, who receive and judgment for those who do not. Um, so then those are, those are mingled. One way of looking at it is um, a lot of times in the Old Testament, the, the prophets are looking at this far off thing, like the, the, the first and second coming of Christ. And they're like two mountains in the distance. And if you just saw these two mountain peaks, you know, in the distance, they might just look like a little M, you know, almost like it was one mountain. And so if you're describing them, not knowing the timing of them, as scripture affirms, they don't know the timing. They just know what's going to happen. That you could be describing first and second coming events right next to each other. And this was part of what kept the gospel a mystery. Uh, this is a much longer discussion, but actually a lot of the New Testament explains this in a lot of detail. So just have to say, read the Bible. <laughs> All right, number 18. Um, there is a name that's, I don't know if it's uh, maybe Russian or Ukrainian. I can't even pretend to pronounce, so forgive me. Um, but it starts with A. So I'm going to call you, and, and it ends with a K. So AK, I'll say AK. How must we love enemies, according to the Bible, in extreme scenarios, such as loving murderers and rapists, in which way should we love them? Um, a murderer uh, can be loved um, you, you could still call the police on them. If they're in the act of murder, you can, you can do whatever you have to do to stop them, including killing them. Um, you can uh, call them out. You can fight a, a just war against them. Um, you, you stop a rapist. You won't let them into your home. You won't be around them because of their behaviors unless they've truly repented and demonstrated the genuineness of that repentance. But how do I then love them in the middle of all that? Well, I don't want... To, to, you know, like, let's say that someone breaks into my house and they're stealing my things. And I'm one of those people who's like, break into my house. You're dead. I'm going to kill you. That's not loving them. I would use minimal force. That's one way of showing love. I'm going to use minimal force to, to stop this thing from happening, not maximum force. That's one way of exhibiting love. I'm going to fight for the rights of even a murderer to have a fair trial. That's one way of loving them. I'm going to pray for their salvation and I'm going to preach the gospel to them. If possible, that's another way of loving them. So I, I think I can love them even though their behavior is requiring strong action on my part to stop them. Like I'm okay with the idea of a rapist being, uh, being actually I'm okay with rapists getting the death penalty. Um, but I still want them to have the gospel of Christ. And this is balancing these different needs for justice and love. And you might look at it this way as like God loves us but he will still judge us. And so where there's proper judgment and justice and proper reactions to sin, those are good and we should do those. But when there is the opportunity for showing grace, the opportunity for showing kindness and the opportunity to preach the gospel, we should do that as well. So I would vote for a murderer to get the death penalty, but I would also want them to get the gospel. And um, I don't see a conflict there, even though I know a lot of people do. I think that, I think that that's appropriate. And I think it's exampled in scripture the way God deals with people. Samantha Woods has a question. We just got a new pastor and he preaches from commentaries in addition to the Bible. Is this something that we should be cautious about? Is there a line where it's too much? Um, Samantha, I think most pastors preach from commentaries, whether they tell you or not. So most pastors are, are they're getting uh, points that they read from commentaries or maybe they're not reading commentaries, but they're remembering other pastors they've heard talk about those things. 
So all of us, you know, pastors remember when we were sitting under another pastor and maybe someone we really respected. And we remember, we remember what they taught on that verse, on that parable, on that topic. And so we, whether we like to or not, we tap into those things as we're sharing. They may or may not tell you they're doing it, but they're doing it. So I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with using commentaries openly and telling people you're using a commentary when you're teaching the Bible. Um, but where you should be cautious is if, here I'll just throw out a few possibilities, if a pastor is using commentaries to avoid doing careful studying of his own. That's something to be cautious about. If he's using commentaries that seem to be teaching things that are questionable, obviously that's something you should be worrying about. If the pastor is um, using uh, commentaries to basically replace entirely his, his work, preparing the studies, praying over it, looking at the text of scripture, understanding it carefully, then I would be concerned that he's abandoning his responsibilities. But it could be that he's just quoting, he tells you who, what sources he's using, whereas you're used to another teacher who didn't tell you what sources they were using, making it sound like all these ideas are mine, <laughs> which is probably not the case. Um, so yeah. Zach Surface says, last question. If God cannot be in the presence of sin, how do you reconcile an eternally perfect unity within the Trinity uh, with the moment Jesus became sin on the cross? Um, so I don't think that when Jesus became sin, he that he became a sinner. And I know some have said that, but I think that's going too far. That phrase, he became sin, uh, means he's embodying all the all the all the representation of all the wickedness of what we have done but he at no point had he sinned he was not actually guilty of sin he was innocent he was being punished for the sin that we've committed so I, I just want to have care about how I word those things Jesus became sin but if I take that and I just run with that phrase anywhere I want then I think I'm going places that um, I'm not supposed to go so I would, Zach, encourage you to consider the possibility that God can be in the presence of sin, though. It's a common thing. I've heard it for years, you know. God can't be in the presence of sin, and I thought it was the case. And then I'd be reading stuff like Job, where Satan appears before God. And I'm like, maybe God can be in the presence of sin. <laughs> like, maybe it's, it. you know, I, I had previously thought, and I haven't shared this online, I, I hope I've never taught this, that that if you were sinful and you came into God's presence, that it would be like an automatic reaction, like you're just vaporized or something like that. This was my very young Christian idea in my head. That God had an automatic reaction to sin, like let's say the way um, uh, a security light outside my home automatically turns on when something's moving. If there's motion, it turns on. And there was something that turned on, some judgment that was engaged if sin just came into the presence of God. And it was not even according to God's will or intention. It was just like, poof, just exploded out, right? Boom, judgment. And if people say, man, I stood before God, I would just be vaporized. There's something that's true about this. And that is that God is a just judge who will deal with sin. But there's something that seems to be false. And that is the idea that God, um, separate from his will, just automatically blast sin whenever it's sinners, whenever they're in his presence. He didn't do it to Isaiah. Interesting. He didn't do it to Moses, the burning bush. God was present, but didn't do it. He doesn't do it to the high priest. When the high priest comes into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, they're not automatically getting blasted. Now, 
in all those cases, Isaiah appeals for mercy and grace to God. And he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, you know, and and God brings this coal that I think represents ultimately the sacrifice of Christ in this neat way. Um, In the, the high priest, he had to do all these. He had to bring sacrifice for himself before he could come into the presence of God and he had to be ceremonially clean. And so this is picturing how Jesus is the one that will bring us in. But notice God doesn't automatically blast sinners and as they enter his presence. But it is, at least it makes you tentative if you're a sinner going into the presence of God. It won't. He won't automatically blast you, but you may get judged because he's a holy God. And guess where you are? You're standing before him. So I'm going to say, uh, you know, can God be in the presence of sin? Um, yes, according to his will, for whatever time period he chooses, um, there's, a, there's a chance he will judge it when he's in the presence of sin. And eventually he will judge all sin, but not apart from his will and timing. And I would, however, also say that Jesus, when he became sin on the cross, didn't make him a sinner, one who has actually committed sin, even if he suffered as though he were guilty, for the sins that we committed, even though we suffered the punishment we would receive, we should have received um, on the cross. This doesn't mean that he actually sinned and got punished for the sins he committed. So it's different. It's a different scenario. I hope that that helps, Zach. I hope working through those things gives you something to think about. You guys don't have to agree with me on everything. That is certainly not the point of this ministry. It's helping you learn to think biblically. I say Bible thinker like I mean, that's hopefully that's you. You're becoming the Bible thinker more and more and more as you work through these issues, as you think about them. Maybe I share something and you go, ah, but this verse seems to disagree. Well, good. You may be right. But that's the process. The, especially the Friday Q&A is about learning the process of, ta- of grabbing scriptures and pulling them into our questions to bring clarity to those issues. So I hope it has blessed you today. Uh, Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I pray that your heart and your mind would rest securely in the knowledge of the grace that God has given you, that you can come boldly to his throne of grace to find mercy for yourself, that you, you enter into his presence. And he's like, he's like the father of the prodigal son running to embrace us and joyous to have us in his arms. Yes, we need to repent, but we are not held back from his grace when we do. Lord bless you.